You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Uh, if you're like me, uh, I, I love true crime podcasts. Uh, I've plowed through several hours of true crime podcasts, even in the last couple of days. Uh, I, I enjoy watching true crime documentaries. Uh, it makes me a little nervous that my wife enjoys watching them almost as much as I do. All right, So if something ever happens, you're like, man, he just, he just kind of seemed to disappear. That's not the case. Start with her, okay? So, but anytime you, you watch these, you watch these true crime documentaries or you listen to these podcasts, everybody seems like a suspect, and, and they'll go and they'll interview somebody, but then by the end, you're like, oh, yeah, I don't think so. We talked to that person. I, I don't guess they are uh, culpable in this, in this murder. I guess they're innocent. And by the time you get to the, usually right before the, the last episode or the last 10 minutes of the show, well, everybody's innocent, right? And you haven't found the guilty party yet. And then the, the last, that's where they get you is at the very end, they're like, well, actually, we left this one important detail out about the timeline and this person actually is, or they leave you hanging, which is even worse. So they can bring back a second season, you know, or a second episode of that. And, and I love watching those things, but it's, it's a whodunit and it's back and forth and you never know who's guilty and who's not. When we look this morning at Psalm chapter 51, the question is not who is guilty because it's open and it's there for us. We are all guilty. So lest you're like, ah, I don't know if I'm super guilty or let me start pointing the fingers at someone else. Just know that the word of God is true and infallible and inerrant. So as we come to the scriptures this morning, we don't come with our own preconceived notions that override the truth of scripture. The preconceived notions that we come with, if they don't line up with the word of God are wrong. If the preconceived notion that you have for yourself, which is true, by the way, according to a recent poll that came out last year by Ligonier Ministries, that 52% of evangelical Protestant Christians, which is mostly us, uh, that they believe that people are mostly good. Like if you had to identify people, they wouldn't be mostly bad. They'd be mostly good. And there's a large percentage of those same people who uh, well, I mean, there is a way that we can get to God by our good works, about 20% of them. And so sometimes we use those stats and we're like, yeah, yeah, but that's the church down the road. I would encourage you and challenge you this morning that when we look at the scripture, as we look at the life of David and look as he cries out to God, that we should be right there with him, pleading the mercy of God. We need that in order to continue to survive, and we need that in order to be in right relationship with God, and that's our goal. So before we get to Psalm chapter 51, you'll see there, if you, if you go to Psalm 51, it says uh, right at the beginning at the top, it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, I'm not going to break down a word study on that, but here's what we know is that in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we see that David, who is a king, and if you're not familiar with David, we get to David because God created an Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. He, they mess up in Genesis chapter 3, and then he says, okay, but I still want to have a people to myself because my command in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is for you to, to, to love me and to worship me and for worshipers to fill the earth. So that's the goal of God from day one. So he says, I want to have a 
a people to myself. And so we call those either the Hebrews or the Jews or the Israelites. So we have leaders like Moses, like Abraham. He says, I still want you to be my people. But then they say, the people of Israel say, we want a king. So he gives them Saul. After Saul, we get this guy named King David. So maybe you're familiar with King David. And so David, and I'll summarize, you can go back and read. I would encourage you to read 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 sometime this week. But David, when it was actually fighting season, now we don't understand that, and social media doesn't count. So, but during fighting season, what would happen is, is the men and the king would go out with his men, and they would fight during the season. And then there was farming season. But during fighting season, the king was supposed to go out with his men and fight. But 2 Samuel 11 begins with, David, he didn't go out with his men. Now, if you remember, he has these mighty men that he had gathered to himself, about 75 men. But there are tens of thousands of men out fighting on behalf of Israel, on behalf of David. But David, being the, the bum that he is, uh, he's back in his castle. And so it says one evening, he's out perusing the top of his castle, and he looks down, and he sees a woman bathing on top of her roof. Her name is Bathsheba. Now, that wasn't incredibly uncommon for that to happen. That was the pretty commonplace. But he says, wow, instead of looking away and walking away, that looks interesting. He was intrigued by this woman on top, of the, on top of the roof bathing. So he sends for Bathsheba. He says, hey, I want you to come to my house. I'm King David. So she comes back to King David's house. David's house. They, um, they enjoy each other's company for a while. And then she goes back home. I'm not going to break down, hey, what does this mean? What, did he force himself on her? Was she, you know, culpable? Like, I don't, we're not going to dig into that. We know that as a result of their interaction, uh, she became pregnant. So she sends word back to David, yo, bro, I'm pregnant and you're the baby daddy. So David's like, hey, man. Now, Bathsheba's husband, his name is Uriah. Everybody say Uriah. All right, so that's Bathsheba's husband. He was one of David's mighty men. So he's out fighting, which is where he was supposed to be and which is where David was supposed to be. And so David says, man, I've got a, I'm in the middle of this conundrum. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be out fighting, but now I've, I've knocked up the wife of one of my mighty men, one of my closest friends in the world. And so he says, okay, well, I want to bring Uriah back from the battle. So he sends a message to Uriah. He says, Uriah, you need a little bit of a break and you need a time to refresh and regroup yourself. So he sends a message to Uriah. Uriah comes back and David says, hey, you've, you've been fighting really well. You're doing a good job. Why don't you go in and just uh, enjoy the relationship that you have with your wife? And he's hoping as a result of that, that they will uh, interact with one another as married couples do and that it will be covered up that David is actually the father. So he's hoping, okay, let me just smooth this over. It'll seem like Uriah is actually the dad, even though he'll have different color hair or whatever that is. We'll just be like, ah, we don't really know. We can't do Ancestry.com tests. So we're assuming at this point that Uriah is going to be the dad. Well, Uriah comes back from battle. He says, hey, go enjoy your wife. But Uriah sleeps outside the door that night. He tells, he tells David, I'm not going to go in and be with my wife because I've got my brothers out here fighting. Now, David's got to be at this point thinking, Oh, man, this is adding insult to injury. And so he sleeps on the outside of his door. So David says, okay, let me give this one more shot. So the next night, David invites Uriah in. And he says, hey, Uriah, let's have a little bit of a party. So they eat the best food and they drink the best wine. And David says uh, in 1 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 11, he says, I want to see if I can get Uriah a little tipsy. So maybe he won't be completely cognizant. And when he goes back home, he can say, oh, yeah, yeah, you slept with your wife. No big deal. The baby is yours. Well, he didn't get Uriah tipsy enough because Uriah still slept outside the door yet again. Well, Uriah goes back to the battle that same day. And so Uriah had not slept with his wife. So David sends a message with Uriah to his captain. 
And that message says, put Uriah on the front lines where we know their best fighters are. And then in a moment, I want you to pull everybody else back from there so that Uriah dies. So David has messed up. He's impregnated this lady that he's found. He can't even get her and her husband to sleep together. So now he ends up killing Uriah. So the commander does just that. Uriah didn't look at the message, obviously. Uh, he takes it back. The captain unseals it. He's like, oh, man, talk about, you know, uh, don't shoot the messenger. Like, this is, this, is, uh, this is crazy. So he puts Uriah out there, and Uriah dies. So David gets the message back from the battleground that Uriah has been killed in battle. So David's like, whew, okay, at least Uriah won't be mad at me now. I've covered that up. One of my best men, only him and the captain know. And David sends back this pithy little message back to the captain saying, hey, thanks, be encouraged. That's what his message says. Hey, thanks so much. And so at that point, David thinks, okay, now we're, we're good to go. I'm just going to randomly pick this woman. Hey, Bathsheba, do you want to come be my bride? And so Bathsheba says, well, I mean, I guess so. I got to support this child. And so Bath, Bathsheba becomes the wife of David. So now we have David and Bathsheba and, well, I'll be doggone if she's not pregnant. And so all these things are happening really close together. But all that's happened in the span of probably about a week that that's happened. So that way, okay, David's thinking, now nobody's going to know. Uriah happened to die. Well, then we get the prophet Nathan, the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David. He says, David, I have a, uh, a little bit of a sermon for you. I have this story. And there's a rich man, there's a poor man. And the rich man has tons of cattle. This poor man has one little lamb. And they live side by side, they're neighbors. And this lamb, he takes it with them, and, and it's precious. And this lamb sits in his arm and, uh, you know, and, and tears at his shoes. All this, this, it's just a great relationship. This visitor came into town to this rich man's house. And the rich man, instead of taking one of his own lambs and preparing it to eat for this visitor, took the lamb of this poor man, the only lamb he had. Can you believe he did that, David? And David says, you know what? Let this man be accursed. This man needs to pay it back. The same thing that's been done to him, uh, that he's done, needs to be done back to him. He's, he's infuriated at this rich man. And then Nathan says, that man is you. That man is you, David. You are the one who had, who had anything that you wanted, yet you took the wife of this man, this one wife that he had, you've gotten rid of him and you've taken her for yourself. At that point, David's, he's crushed. And Nathan says, there's going to be, there's going to be curses in this way. He says, God's going to spare your life, but he's going to take the life of that son. And that's devastating to David. David cried out. We see the, at the end of chapter 12 that David and, and his uh, spiritual men, they cry out to God for a week, but then the, then the child still dies. So we understand there that, that David sinned at least several of the worst sins that you can possibly do if we had to rank them, if we had to categorize them. He does those things. Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, God knows what you did. So then David responds with Psalm 51. So we go to Psalm 51. Here's what I want us to see as we, as we walk away from this psalm. But before we jump in, because we, there, there are, um, there's a lot we could dig into. We could probably spend uh, weeks or months talking about all the implications of this psalm. But if you walk away with nothing else, I want you to see this, is that we cannot underestimate sin's offense to God. We cannot underestimate sin's offense to God, but we cannot overvalue the mercy that comes through repentance. 
We can't underestimate sin's offense to God. And I'm not talking about David's sin here. I'm talking about any sin. I'm talking about your sin, the sins you commit with your hands, the sins you commit with your eyes, the, the places you go, the thoughts that you think. We can't underestimate any of those sins offenses to God. But we also cannot overvalue God's mercy that we receive through repentance because it goes even further. It reaches even deeper. It runs even faster than we can. Sometimes you go to YouTube, if you're like me, and you go search out information. But you usually don't look at information, hopefully, on, on things that you already know how to do. So if you're about my age, which is 37, there should be no chance that I need to go to YouTube and say, how do I brush my teeth? You know, I've made it so far, and I've, I've, got, all these, I've got these things in my mouth that I, that I eat food with. I need to figure out how to brush my teeth. You know, nobody does that. Hopefully, hopefully nobody here has ever YouTubed, how do you brush your teeth? We, we look at YouTube for the things that we don't really know about. And here's what I would encourage you with this morning. For many of us, we think repentance is, ah, I just shouldn't be doing that thing. I got to stop. Why do I keep doing that? Duh. But that's not repentance. What we're going to see here this morning is David is going to lay out, here's what repentance actually is. And so I want to to come at this text understanding sin and understanding mercy. Hopefully, we we maybe, even if we read this text before, we don't understand fully, and that probably hasn't taken root in our lives, the ways that we are supposed to repent as far as a spirit-enabled people. So are we experiencing spirit-enabled repentance? R.C. Sproul, he said this, Uh, the late R.C. Sproul, he said, sin is like cosmic treason. It's overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. And I think that summarizes very nicely. We cannot underestimate sin's impact, the offense to God. But God's mercy still goes further still. Psalm 51. I'm going to break this down. We're going to walk through this um, carefully, but maybe not slowly. So verse 1, he says, He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Just so you know, if if someone says, hey, have mercy on me. If one of my kids say, I know I deserve something, but, but, but please don't give me that punishment. Here's what mercy has to be paired with is judgment. So when David even begins the psalm, he's saying, I don't want the punishment that is owed to me, but God can't just say, you know what? All right, that punishment, boom, gone. That punishment has got to go somewhere. So when David says, have mercy on me, he's saying, don't give me the judgment, put it somewhere else. Now, if you've read the Bible, if you've been to church for more than about 10 minutes, you're like, oh yeah, we know where this goes. But here's what I want us to see, is that as we walk through that, we see actually three sets of of triads, just in those first two verses. And he says kind of the same thing over and over, just by cleansing and blotting out and washing. Why does he say these things so many times, just different ways, just different ways of saying the same thing? Because each one of those things is growing in intensity. So look there with me. He says, have mercy, which means to be gracious to me. That's literally what it means. Be gracious to me. But then it says, according to your steadfast love. Now, in the Hebrew, that word is chesed. Everybody say chesed. chesed. That's right. So it's said with a with front guttural, not the back guttural. Okay? Hebrew's crazy. That's why we speak English. That's why we talk American mostly. So he says, not only be gracious to me, but then he says, I have this covenant love with you. So he pleads this covenant love, even though David is the one who's broken the covenant. But then he says the third part of that, according to your abundant mercy. 
that abundant mercy. He says, be gracious to me. I feel like you kind of owe me because of covenant love. But that abundant mercy means it's from the gut. He says, from every part of who you are, please don't send this punishment my way. And if you notice here, David doesn't make himself miserable. He doesn't make himself miserable through fear. He makes himself miserable through God's mercy. He doesn't say, hey, I'm so scared of you. But he pleads out to God saying, based on your character, not on mine. The second thing we see right there in those first couple of verses, notice he says, uh, blot out my transgressions. So we, we use these three words, transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Now that word transgression, he's saying, this is my personal rebellion. That's what that literally means. But then it intensifies with iniquity. That personal rebellion deserves punishment. But then my sin, that means this is my nature. So he says, I've done something bad. I deserve to be punished. And man, this is everything that I am. It's really hard for me to even reckon with anything else because I require sacrifice now as a result of my sin. This is my nature. So we see that intensifying throughout. But then if you look at uh, the, the next three, or in, at the end of verse one and verse number two, he uses the, these three phrases. He says, blot out. Then he says, wash me thoroughly. And then he says, to cleanse. Again, he's, he's growing in intensity. He's not just saying, hey, please have mercy on me. And uh, I feel real bad about that. Okay, let me go keep living. He's like, no, blot this out, which means to wipe it out of the pages. It means to take this historical record and to get rid of it. Then he says to wash me thoroughly. This, this is, man, my, my clothes, everything is dirty. I, I went hunting several months ago, and I went hunting pigs down in middle Georgia. And uh, when I came back from hunting that night, we drove all night. We were sweating. It was nasty. Shot a few pigs. We get back. We had to gut them about 4 o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold, uh, in the dark. It was wild. Me and Jeff were there. And, uh, and so we, we're in the, in the blood and the guts. And then we get back in the truck, and we ride an hour and a half up to, or about an hour, up to the, up to the cooler, up to the processing place. We haul these hogs uh, out into the cooler so they can be cold all night. Well, that cooler smelled terrible like, because they slaughter animals there. So then we get back in the truck and ride about another mile, uh, about another hour home. We get home at about 530 in the morning on a Saturday morning. It, it was terrible. But what was even worse than me being tired was the way that we smelled. I took my clothes off and I got in the shower. I got out. I was like, yo, I still stink. And then I could smell my clothes that were laying there on the, on the ground. And I was like, man, those things stink. So I put them in a bag and I put them outside the back door because they smelled so terrible. And I remember uh, the next morning, I was like, I got to get take another shower because I still smell. Like you just get stuck in your nose hairs, you know, like it's just there. Then I smell those clothes. I had to wash my clothes multiple times because that smell of dirty, nasty was still there. That's what he means. He says, wash me thoroughly. He says over and over. It's not just this, hey, hey, wipe that stain off. This is a little bit of sin. Let me see if I can get that off. Oop, got it. We had a Tide pen. We're good to go. He says, no, wash me thoroughly. It's in every part of what I am. But then he says, and cleanse me. That literally means to pronounce clean. That means the cleaning is over. He says, so start on the outside, work in the inside, so every part of me is clean. This sin has got every part of who I am. So we begin verse number three. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He says right there in verse number three, so he's, he said, hey, I've done these things, please wash me. But then he says, my sin is before you. The sinner, friend, listen, the sinner does not know how unhappy he is until his sin is right in front of him. The sinner does not know how unhappy he is until his sin is right in front of his face. And he says, and my sin is ever before me. He says, it's right there. I can see it. I can see every part of it. Sometimes you take a picture and you're like, hey, let me, let me turn to this angle. Let me put this leg out. Let me, let me suck in. Let me wear black t-shirts because there are things, different parts of us that we want to hide. You want to hide uh, your nose or a receding hairline uh, or a gut. And you're like, hey, let me. But what God says is your sin is right there before me. There's no hiding. There's no making excuses. It's all visible. It's not, hey, let me, just, let me just tell you about why I did this. And let me tell you all the reasons why. And let me make excuses and explanations. He says, no, in front of God's holiness, there's no point of view where you can angle this picture just right to make it look a little thinner, to make that hairline look a little fuller. There's no angle. He says, my sin is ever before me. You can't justify this. And that's because God is incredibly holy. Then he finishes finishes those couple of verses right there. He says, behold, this is who I am. Behold, this is who you are. He said, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, his inheritance is an inclination to sin. He says, this is who I am. I inherited this from my parents who inherited it from their parents. This is what I do. I'm a sinner. It's got me through and through. It devours everything good in me. This is not some sort of freak accident. He doesn't say, ah, I made an oopsie. My bad. My bad, God. Can you just look over that? Because if you look in the first three verses, he uses the word my five times. He said, this is my transgression, my sin, my iniquity. This is what I have done. And he's not here making excuses saying, I, I couldn't help it. Man, blame it on my parents. He's not, he's not making excuses in that way. He's saying, no, this, this has affected every single part of me. I read one commentator, and they said, oh, you can't, you can't walk away with the depravity of humanity from this passage. I'm like, I don't know what else you walk away with from this. Where's the positive in this? At no point does David say, you know what, except for no. He says, I'm, I am full of sin. It's who I am. I can't help it. This stream of sin flows from a depraved heart. And we're going to do whatever is in our hearts, whatever we see as most valuable. Verse number seven, he continues. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. So he says here, we, we, we look back at, at this ceremonial cleansing. He says, purge me with hyssop. And that's where they would take uh, a hyssop plant. And it was, it was a very common plant. It grew in almost, in almost every garden. It grew up walls. But it looked kind of like lavender, like a mixture of, of, of uh, like rosemary and lavender. And they would take this and they would dip it in the blood of an animal and they would, they would sprinkle it on people. They did this all the way up until Jesus, when Jesus said, hey, 
Let's get in the water and be dunked. And now this is a culmination of this purification with hyssop. And so even there before Jesus was baptized, they were like, hey, let's keep taking this animal's blood and, and throwing it at people. But Jesus is like, no, we're going to stop that. We're going to stop sprinkling them. We're going to start dunking them. So that's when Jesus, that's when it, he takes up into here. But at, at David's point, he says, he says hey, be, purge me with hyssop. And so you can look at it in Leviticus 14. And as lepers came down with leprosy, they would take them and part of the cleansing ritual was to purge them with hyssop. And they would sprinkle the blood of an animal on them seven times so that they would be made clean. So he says here, clean me, purge me with, his, with hyssop. Then he says to wash me. That word wash right there literally means to descend me, to take the sin away from me. Maybe you've heard the, the theological term to expiate, to put my sin on an animal and kick that animal out of town so that it's gone. It's gone forever. It's removed fully from me. He says, and I will be whiter than snow. So don't just take my crime and my guilt. Don't just take my punishment, but take the fuel for my sin. Take the reason that I want to sin. Take it far away from me. And I'll be like this fresh snow. We don't get a whole lot of this in the South, but if you've ever seen just like a ton of snow, and some of y'all are from up North, but when the sun hits the snow, the fresh snow, it's blinding. It's so white. I was in Alaska several years ago and we went to this, this giant glacier and it's hard to look around. Like people wearing sunglasses uh, and it, because the, the sun that's reflecting off the snow and off the ice is so bright. And he says, make me whiter than snow. That's about as white as it gets. He finishes in verse number nine from that passage we just read. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. We, we've seen this. We've already seen this in verse number one. He says to blot these things out. So, so right here, I think the, the, the passage, it turns. It, this is where the, the passage sort of has a natural break. And from here it goes to, man, I'm in terrible condition. I need you to work on my behalf. And it turns towards salvation. And it turns toward, okay, here's all the bad things. Get rid of all of this in my life. And then he begins at verse number 10, create in me a clean heart. But here's the thing I want us to see real quickly. Here's how the Puritans would break down uh, repentance. And they would break repentance down in these ways. And, and they actually wrote about this on Psalm 51. And they said there, there are four steps to true repentance so you can find joy in Christ. And the first one is, is seeing your sin. They would say, first, you need to see your sin. And we see it right there. And, and they actually walked through um, verse number four. But it says, look at verse number four. It says, um, in your sight, in other words, to see your sin means to elevate your conscience so you can see it from the perspective of Christ. He says to see, and this, is, this literally means to think about your sin, to ponder your sin. First, you have to use your mind, see your sin. He says, don't look at it from the perspective of someone else. Don't consider, have I sinned? Is this bad based on the society's definition of sin? Based on your parents' definition of what is right or wrong? Based on the way that you feel? Well, it just, it felt right in my heart. Nobody ever sets out to sin. Nobody, not, very few people set out and say, you know what? I'm going to go do something terrible. Or, you know what? I'm going to sit and ponder terrible thoughts. I'm going to speak with such anger and vitriol to my spouse. Most of us don't do that. It just gets us, right? It almost catches us by surprise. And so the Puritans would say, sit, see your sin. These are not your standards. These are the Lord's standards. So he says, in your sight have I sinned. Secondly, they would say to confess your sin. We see again in verse number four. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. 
He takes full responsibility there. He, he doesn't try to shift the blame. How many of us, we say, I know this is sin, but you don't understand this situation in my life. But if I can just wheeze on my way this way, maybe it's not sin so much. No, sit, see your sin, confess your sin, but then thirdly, mourn your sin. He says here, against you and you only have I sinned. There's this double emphasis. And, and the reason we say mourn your sins is because we don't understand the character and nature of God. You're like, yeah, but David sinned against Bathsheba and against his child and against Uriah and against the whole nation. But all of those folks, the reason that David says against you and you only is because they are created in the image of God. And so even sinning against Bathsheba is ultimately a sin, not just against Bathsheba, not, not just against Uriah, not just against their child, not, not just against the nation, but it's ultimately a sin against God because they are created in God's image. The thing that separates us from this chair or an animal or a rock is the fact that God breathed his life into us. This is the emotional response, is to mourn. But then lastly, if you've done those three things, if you see your sin, if you confess your sin, if you mourn your sin, the result is going to be hating your sin. So the Puritans wrote about this often, how we are to hate our sin. And that's where I think it takes us into verse number 10. This is how we experience joy. So we'll pick up in verse number 10. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your spirit, your Holy Spirit, from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by a willing spirit. He says, this is going to be miraculous. This hopeless old nature that was dead, there, there was nothing there in my heart. He says, take that out. He says, create in me a new heart. We were going to look at Romans chapter 7. You can go back, go back and read it. I don't have time to read it this morning. Romans 7, verses 18 through 25. But Paul says, I, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things that I want to do because I'm created with iniquity. I, I've, I'm created a sinner, not because of God, because of our parents, Adam and Eve. So he says, create in me a new heart. He doesn't say, create in me another chance. He, he doesn't want another chance. He wants inner transformation. I can threaten my kids with, with fear of punishment. And we're often threatened with fear of punishment. I mostly drove the speed limit-ish on the way here this morning because I was scared of getting a ticket or losing my vehicle or hitting somebody else. Like that, I'm, I'm fearful of the punishment. Fear only restrains sin. That's all it does is fear restrains sin, but it does not transform the heart. He says here, give me a clean heart. Give me a new heart. He says uh, right there at the end of verse number 10, renew a right spirit within me. He doesn't say give me new actions. The actions are the shadow of the essence. He says the essence should be within me. This is the mark of a true believer, of a true disciple. And he says at the end of verse number 12, uphold me with a willing spirit. Don't let me be controlled by my passions, but let me be controlled by the spirit. This is the antidote to temptation. If, man, if I'm just constantly tempted, and we all are, even when we don't realize it, the antidote to temptation, the vaccine to temptation, is to find delight in Christ and in him alone. The new heart. Verse number 13, we'll finish the passage with this. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways. In, in other words, notice this. 
because I want us to see this as we, as we look at these verses. When David experiences joy in his heart, he says, then when my heart is transformed, my attitude changes, my actions change. A transformed heart results in being part of a community, being on mission, loving each other, words that are life-giving, not tearing down. He says, then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You're like, okay, how do we get from your heart to these sacrifices? Well, he didn't begin and say, hey, do the right things with your hands and then your heart will be transformed. He said just the opposite. Created me a clean heart. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. In other words, that, that word right there literally is bloods. He says, deliver me. And that's, I'm talking about the gang. Hey, deliver me. You know, we got these factions. He says, no, deliver me from the guilt, the physical guilt of my shame. And only the, only the king could remit, uh, could take away the punishment of a capital crime. And so David here, who is the king, he's pleading with the king of kings saying, take away this punishment from me, from my blood guiltiness. Then in verse 15, oh Lord, open my lips. This is the cry of a conscience who has experienced shame to the point of silence. How often do we not want to cry out to God because we feel full of shame? Our shame leads us to silence. But a pardoned sinner makes, makes a great singer. And some of you are, ah, I don't, I don't really like to sing. I don't get it. I'm not a good singer. That's okay. I sat in front of Jeff this morning, and he sang just fine too. So if you're like, ah, I don't know about singing, but that's what we're called to do. A sinner who is pardoned makes a great singer. And then he says in verse number 16, I delight in these, uh, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. He, he talked in chapter 50 about sacrifices, these, these physical sacrifices. But he says, that's not what you're after. You're after a heart. So even the best sacrifices don't lead to a contrite heart. No, it's just the opposite. He says, God is primarily about our hearts before him, being poured out to him. Your best gifts are useless without a contrite heart. What does contrite mean? Contrite means uh, it's a heart that knows how little it deserves, but how much it has received. And some of you are like, ah, man, I, I know how little I deserve. And so we just go on self-loathing and we become just enraptured with ourselves and everything is about me. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm contrite. I know how little I deserve. Oh, woe is me, this self-pity, this self-absorbed. Others of us, we're on the other side of that. We think about how much we've received. Like, oh man, look at all these good things. I need more of these things. And if we take that half of that statement about being contrite, we become just as self-absorbed. But contrite is saying, I'm not looking to these good things. I'm not looking for myself. I'm looking to the giver of good things. And I realize both of these. I deserve so little, but I've received so much. A contrite heart frees us from the need of constantly looking at ourselves. 
We get to experience the grace and the goodness of God's character and nature. Here are some truths I want us to walk away with this morning. The first truth, and if if you're a note taker, you can write these down. My hope is that some of these truths will just kind of hit, write that down, just like ponder that one. But just a few of these. First of all, you're capable of a lot more than you're willing to admit. You're capable of a lot more than you're willing to admit. If you've ever seen the, the show Broad Church on Netflix, we love that show. I wish I had more than three seasons. I check like once a month. I'm like, have they, re- have they started re-airing this? It's been years. But I love the movie Broad Church, but, or the show Broad Church. But in the, in the very first episode, uh, the, the local investigator, their name is Ellie Miller, if you've ever seen the show. Uh, it's set like somewhere in Scotland. Just watching the, the cinematic, you can mute it and just look at all the beautiful views. It's amazing. Um, but Ellie, who's the local detective, uh, they had to bring in an outside detective named Hardy. And, uh, and so Ellie, she tells Hardy, this outside objective voice, she said, I know everybody in this town. I don't think anybody could have, could have committed this murder. And Hardy says, people are, are able to do a whole lot more given the right circumstances. And Ellie says, yeah, but these folks have a moral compass. And Hardy says, well, even a compass can break. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. For many of us, we think, ah, I wouldn't do that. And, and that's probably true. For, for most of us, we're not going to commit murder. But until you reckon with your nature and your sinful uh, desires and tendencies, you will be surprised by what you do. We have to understand this is who we are. We are sinners who sin. We don't sin and therefore become sinners. Our nature is that we are sinners. And so don't be duped by thinking, ah, I would never do that. Even after Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4, God goes to Cain. What does he say? He says, sin is crouching at your door. He doesn't say, bro, you just got ate up. He says, no, watch out. You're still bad. And it may be worse than you could ever even imagine. If we think David, a man after God's own heart, could do this, don't you think that we could do this? And you're like, oh, well, I probably won't commit adultery and commit all these people. But don't you think our hearts are just as bad as his? Again, God is not looking at the action saying, if you do these things, you're like David. He's saying, no, the problem is with your heart. Don't be in denial about your capacity. You're capable of a lot more than you're willing to admit. Secondly, When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. Fix your eyes on Christ. Chris talked about this. He preached on this last week from Psalm 73. Fix your eyes on Christ. He is the one who has dealt seriously with your sin. Deal seriously with your sin, and he'll deal gently with us. We belittle the sacrifice of Christ when we feel the need to beat ourselves up over our sin or we feel the need to beat others up as a result of their sin. Put the sin on Jesus. He is the one who has dealt with it. The third truth that we see here is don't avoid sitting face to face with your sin. Don't avoid sitting face to face with your sin. Look it square between the eyes. Martin Luther, a reformer, he said, We must distinguish between a sinner who feels the weight of his sin and a sinner who does not. He doesn't say, let's distinguish between sinners. He says, are you mourning your sin? Do you hate your sin? Because at the root of your sin, you're doubting the goodness of God. I talked to a a brother this week. He confessed some things to his wife. 
And they called me. We talked for a couple of hours on the phone. And I said, what, what led you into this sin? How did this sin creep into your life? He said, it was a matter of access. It was easily accessible. I said, no, it wasn't. You're not looking at it right now. It's accessible. Well, I guess it's not access. We broke it down. Here's, here's where we land, folks. We think we deserve more than what we have because we're busy, too busy for the things of the kingdom, but we think we're busy, we get tired, we get hungry. Man, why, why can't she just provide for me in this way? I deserve more than that. So we run to those things that we think satisfy rather than recognizing that our need for satisfaction is in the goodness of God and what he has provided for us. So our sin is not a result of, of accessibility. Our sin is not a result of the, the circumstances. Well, this made me do it. Or if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done this. Our sin is a result of doubting the goodness of God. That's at the heart of our sin. The next truth that we see is there is a lasting difference between reprieve and regeneration. Between reprieve and regeneration. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest uh, American theologian, he said, we always want to do what our heart wants to do. Whatever strongest urging we have, and he wrote this in a book called Freedom of the Will. And now, spoiler alert, he says that our free will gets us in trouble. That's basically it. He says, we're always going to do whatever we feel most passionate about. But when we look at Christ, he doesn't just say, you know what? Let me put you on life support. He, he, for a moment, let's, let's get you back to up and going, then we're going to send you on your way. Pat you on the bottom. All right, go try again, buddy. No, we need a new heart. He doesn't put us on life support. He gives us a heart transplant. This is not momentary. This is eternal. But then lastly, we see there is an eternal difference between remorse and repentance. Because again, remorse is self-loathing, it's self-pity. It's looking at your own foolishness saying, man, how did I get myself into this situation? I've got to avoid doing this again. It's looking at me for both the problem and the solution. But repentance is me looking at the holiness of God and looking at his law and finding goodness in him. It's not looking inward, but it's looking outward. It's not looking at me, but it's looking upward at who God is and what he has done and resting on his promises and his mercy. Because we see here both David and, and Jesus and David points us to Jesus. But we identify first with David because we are sinners in the flesh. But the good news is that Jesus was fully God in the flesh. David looked on Bathsheba with sinful desire in his heart. But when Jesus looks at us, it's with mercy in his heart. David was on that rooftop and he knew the penalty of sin and ran toward it. Jesus, when he was on the cross, he said, I know the penalty of sin and I'm going to stay and pay that penalty for you. David wanted to be ceremonially cleansed with hyssop, with a plant. But Jesus says, I'm going to cleanse you because of hanging on a tree. David wanted to be cleansed with the blood of an animal, but Jesus says, it's going to be my blood that not just sprinkles you, but covers you. As a result of David's sin, he was led to the judgment seat of Christ, which is condemnation. But now in Christ, we, we can go to him and approach him on the mercy seat and find life. David didn't want his name blotted. He wanted his sin blotted from his record. But now in Christ, we know that our names will never be blotted from the Lamb's book of life. 
David said, please don't turn your face from me. Uh, Please don't hide your face. But the father turned his back on Jesus so that he could look face to face with us. David was a man after God's own heart, but through the sacrifice of Jesus, he grants to us a new heart and new motivation. David was a king who deserved to die, but Jesus is a king who died for us and who rose again and whose reign will never end. Amen? That's the king that we look to because we're so much like David. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out so that we could find gladness and joy and life and so that we could sing loudly. But he says, turn from your sin. We cannot underestimate sin's offense to God and we cannot overvalue the mercy that comes through repentance. So I would plead with you this morning, as we partake in this meal that we call communion, whether it's your first time to repent of your sin or if you do this every single week with us, repent yet again. He is calling you. He says, to fall upon my mercy, no matter what you've done, find hope and grace and peace and joy in Christ and in Christ alone. 